inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today, the topic or the theme of today's podcast, and yes, I've heard from some of you that you missed the old way where it was a little bit mixed. So I asked, I had polled you in the community tab um, about what you prefer, and I will check that today and we will make some adjustments accordingly. But today's theme is all about attachment, borderline personality disorder, inner child work, and all that kind of stuff. Um, Really great questions. It'd be a really interesting conversation. Let's just jump right into it. Now, the first question says, Hi, Katie, I hear you talk about reparenting in order to deal with attachment issues a lot. My therapist wants to try this with me, but somehow I feel very repulsed and almost angry when I think about this idea. I know it's childish, but I don't want to do this myself. I want so badly for some other person to fill this parenting hole and just having to care for myself, which is pretty much what I've had to do all my life, just seems so unsatisfying. Are there other ways to deal with attachment issues from childhood abuse and neglect? And if not, how can I overcome this internal barrier that keeps me from fully engaging in the therapeutic process? Thank you so much. I love this question. I've heard this from a lot of you. I've heard this from a ton of my patients over the years. And the truth is, this reaction is incredibly helpful. Now, I know you're thinking like, how is it helpful? Like, I feel like it's like pushing back against therapy. That's helpful information. And what I believe is happening is child you is tantruming, throwing a fit at the idea, or maybe the the issue with, I guess it's like struggling to accept that we're going to have to do it ourselves. And I think it's that grieving process and that understanding that our parents didn't do it for us. And that anger, I believe, is coming from that. That's my hypothesis. My question for the person who asked this question is, do you agree or do you think there might be some truth in that? Could we be curious about this? Could we consider if this could be the root? Because the thing about therapy that is incredibly interesting and honestly why I love what I do is that it's not just about what we can do in therapy and how well we process and the aha moments and all that. Sure, that's a big component of it, but a big part of therapy is actually just what comes up for us in the process, which is why sometimes when many of you ask questions like, hey, how do I tell my therapist this? Or I don't even know why I feel this way. Something must be wrong with me. I'm like, just tell them that that is helpful. And this question would be incredibly helpful for your therapist to know. And they might already know. I don't know if you've told them the person didn't specify, but I believe, especially it like was a little flag when you said, I know it's childish. I was like, good. Child use reacting. What could you possibly be reacting to? Grief and anger. Anger, if you didn't know, is a secondary emotion, meaning it's very protective. The emotion that it's usually protecting us from is hurt, disappointment, things that feel make us feel kind of like squishy. You know how I talk about puffer fishing all the time, how we're like soft in the middle. Any of those soft in the middle experiences can cause us to stick our spines out to puffer fish, meaning anger, aggression, irritability, isolation, things that we're going to do to like push people away and protect that soft, squishy middle. Um, And so because you're feeling that way, like getting angry and feeling childish, and it's all very helpful and very indicative of what's going on for you. Now, that that's like my therapeutic point of view. However, to answer your question specifically, 
Are there other ways that we can deal with these attachment issues? Yes and no. There are attachment-based therapists. Again, this is not my specialty, so I'm just speaking from like a very, you know, bird's eye view of what I've learned in school and what I know from my colleagues. But we can deal with attachment issues through navigating our, uh, we call them familial patterns, which is just like a fancy way of saying the way our family kind of operated. We can try to navigate that and try to understand it. But at the end of the day, I feel like that only gets us so far. That's almost like a defense mechanism in and of itself, because it's like we can intellectualize our way through it versus feeling it. And that child, that connection, that reparenting, that inner child work is really the meat of it. And I believe where the true healing comes. Um, We can operate and work some of those things through with our therapist directly without having to go back and do the reparenting like right away. But I believe that it's the best way. Um, and honestly, because of your reaction, and I know this sounds horrible, and but I mean this in the most kind and loving way, that because of your reaction, I believe this is the path that we should take. Even if other, you know, attachment-based therapies were beneficial and could be helpful, I believe that this is where yours, your healing needs to come from because of this strong reaction. And I, I think that's something I've talked about, Oh, you know, over the years, but an overreaction is often thought of as a bad thing. You're having an overreaction. You're overreacting. You're so sensitive, blah, blah, blah. But I find in therapy, especially, but in life in general, an overreaction is actually really helpful. It's indicative of something deeper. We're overreacting because something else is going on, right? An overreaction is essentially when our, I don't know if you want to call it, if you believe in like the id, ego, super ego, but it's when, you know, the adult part of us are, I think it's our super ego, if I recall appropriately. But anyway, that adult part of us isn't able to regulate how we look to other people because we feel so intensely. And so we lash out, we cry, we throw a tantrum, we, oh, quote unquote, overreact. And I think that, again, that just shows that there's something bigger going on, which is why we couldn't essentially hold it together and pretend to be okay, and we overreacted. Um, again, overreaction is not a bad word, okay? I, I get kind of protective of that word, just in the way like sensitive, being sensitive. I think those are both great words, and they're both really helpful, and they come out of something going on with us, and I, I don't want those to be always have a negative connotation. So, okay, um, how can I, and the final question says, and if not, how can I overcome this internal barrier that keeps me from fully engaging in the therapeutic process? Tell your therapist about this and to even tell her what I said. Say like, hey, I talked to this therapist online. I asked a question um, and she thought it might be this. What do you think? Because she's your therapist. I trust her. She knows your story better. Um, bring it up and engage her reaction. Gauge what she thinks. And we're going to run into barriers in therapy in my experience, that just means we're going in the right direction. I know it's uncomfortable, but therapy that's not challenging isn't really therapy, right? It means we're not changing anything. Change is uncomfortable. And I'll be honest, there are tons and tons of moments in my own therapeutic process where I think, shit, this is so hard. I just wish this was easier. Why does this have to be so uncomfortable? Um, But it's through those times that I grow the most because I'm challenged to be a better version of myself and to change the way that I interact with other people. So yeah, I hope that helps. Now there were comments on this. He says, as an add-on question, does reparenting slash doing the inner child work help to heal a disorganized attachment style? Now, 
Oh, and it's continue. Sorry. I'll be talking to my therapist about this specifically this week, but I'm curious on your thoughts as well. Okay. So if you don't know, and I had bookmarked this, uh, uh, disorganized. There it is. Okay. So the, when it comes to disorganized style, if you don't know what they, what the, cause there's four attachment styles. And so, as soon as we're born, we we start forming a bond with our parent, right? Or our caregiver. Usually it's our parent, like our mother or father, but it it can be any kind of caregiver. And for the first few years, you know, we're entirely dependent on them. We we expect them to nurture us, feed us, change us, you know, let us sleep when we're tired, all of those things. And so when our caregivers aren't emotionally available all the time, or they, they sometimes are, sometimes aren't, um, maybe they don't come at all when we cry, we can develop different attachment styles. Meaning that if if our parents came and did everything appropriately, psychologically speaking, we would have, you know, a secure attachment. But we could also have anxious, avoidant, or as this person is talking to, disorganized. Now, um, a disorganized attachment style, and I just, I liked the way this was described, is when we, um, they say that this is both anxious and avoidant, meaning that it's a combination of the other two insecure attachment styles. And it's usually believed to be a result of abuse, not always, but most of the time. And the child essentially doesn't know what to expect, meaning that when sometimes a parent comes when we cry, sometimes they don't. A lot of times if we have um, addicts in our that are our caregivers, maybe our mother or father is an alcoholic or a drug addict, they can be unreliable, right? There's no consistency. And so we don't know how to, what we can expect at all, how to respond, how to react, what to expect from our parents. And so there's this contrasting behavior. Sometimes they're loving, sometimes they're not. And so we can sometimes want to be held and cared for and other times push back and not want anything at all. And so we essentially can't rely on our caregivers to give us what we need. And they aren't a consistent source of, you know, safety and they can often cause fear. And so we can, it's honestly, it's, it's really uncomfortable for us as we grow up. And so just, I just wanted to, I don't want to get into it too much, but those of us with disorganized attachment style can struggle with intimacy. We can avoid people being close to us emotionally or physically. Um, we can also want relationships deeply, but be scared when we get into them and sometimes self-sabotage. And there are a ton of a ton of symptoms we can get into, but that's not really what the question is. The question is, does reparenting or doing inner child work help heal this attachment style? And the the short answer is yes. And this can heal all uh, attachment styles, obviously other than secure, because there's really nothing to heal with that one. But the other three that we mentioned can be healed through the inner child work. Again, because if we're going back to little kid us and we're trying to relate to him or her and, and help us to feel heard and understood and cared for. And we're offering these like good father, good mother messages through, you know, reparenting inner child work. Then we can, in essence, give little kid us the consistency and care that we needed, but didn't get. And yes, it's hard. And, but yes, it's really worth it. Now there was another add on. It said, my therapist talks about self-reparenting the inner child all the time, but my inner child just throws a tantrum, not wanting it from myself. It's so unfair that I get stuck having to do the job that should have been done by my parents. I feel like I keep getting conflicting messages in this topic that you say um, 
oh, that say you and only you need to reparent yourself. But at the same time, um, don't be too self-reliant and ask and receive help from others. How can we hold both of those at the same time in the process? Beautiful question. Now, to go back to the first component of the answer, that tantrum is really key. And I just want all of you to be very aware of that and know that that's helpful information because child you is sad and hurt that their parents sucked at their job and fucked things up for us. And we're trying to come to grips with it. And it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to want to throw a tantrum. I'd actually encourage you to throw tantrums. I've told um, many of my patients and many parts uh, members of our community to throw tantrums. Sometimes it's helpful to get that out. There's a reason that we feel that way, right? So allow yourself to feel it, to let it pass through you. Um, also talk about it. But then to get to the the question on this, so doing the things I said in the beginning about, you know, that that's all helpful information, I think is part of the grieving process and us being angry and hurt. Um, Now, the conflicting messages. Now, reparenting yourself doesn't mean that we can't ask for support from other people. I think the struggle with those of us who have attachment issues or abandonment issues is that we were black and white right? And life is all gray. Reparenting yourself means that we're doing this work to look back on child us, to hear him or her and what their pain points are, what's happening to them, and to offer some support, some love, some consistency that we didn't get, whatever. And it could be more things. I'm just offering those up as as examples, but we're offering ourselves the things we didn't get. And we're trying to find how to incorporate that into our self-talk and the way that we care for ourselves now. And, and we can also do it through letters. We write to younger self and back from younger self. To us. There's a lot of different ways we can do this, but it's offering that to ourselves now. Okay. Now let's imagine that we're doing that work and, and let's pretend we never had shitty parents, right? So let's think, okay, so I had a secure attachment. Well, does that mean then I wouldn't have other friends and family for support? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Absolutely not. So at the same time as we're doing that work, we can also talk to other people about what we're going through, get support from our therapist and our friends and other family members, Um, reach out to them when we just need a little extra boost or we need someone to connect with. It's not about one or the other. It's about both. And I know it's hard because those of us with attachment issues think it's all or nothing. We think we're either really with people or not at all. I'm here to tell you, you can be doing that work on yourself and have other ancillary support. Is that support a replacement for our caregiver or the work that we're doing? No. Is that support like a parent? No. Is that support someone we can reach out to when we just need a little extra boost and we're looking for some insight? Absolutely. And so that's really that differentiation. Yes, I know it's hard. We think, oh, that person's helpful. Fill this parent void that I have. Fix little me. But I'm here to tell you that as you're doing that work on yourself, that urge to put someone else in that hole that our shitty parents left will diminish. So just continue doing that work. Continue, you know, talking to little you, offering yourself the things that you wished you had when you were a kid and 
that urge to fill that void will go away. Okay. Just keep at it. It gets better. Now there was another question on this. It said, um, I feel the anger with this too. As an add-on, how can I deal with the contradicting feelings around how I feel about reparenting myself? I feel angry for having to do the job that my parents should have done. But then I have to um, have a conflict in feelings because I feel like I deserve the emotional neglect from my parents. Oof, abuse does its number on us, right? How can I handle this and move on from this? Okay. Now this, when this, I deserved it, this, uh, kind of minimizing of the pain or even validating what was done is is really a coping skill. And so I'd let your therapist know that this is coming up for you because that's that's really how we survived, right? A lot of times it sounds crazy to say, but a lot of times in order to get through childhood abuse, because we can't often, it's very unlikely we can move out, right? We're usually children. We have no means to do that. We might not have another family member we can live with, or our parents wouldn't let us live with that other family member. We can feel very, very trapped, right? Especially when it's childhood emotional neglect, our parents can essentially be doing like all the things they're quote unquote supposed to do, like getting us to school and feeding us and giving us clothes. But you know, that doesn't mean that they're not abusing us in other ways. And so um, having, you know, that kind of feeling kind of stuck the only way that we can kind of deal with those emotions is feeling like, well, I must have done something to cause this, or it really wasn't that bad. Or, you know, I wasn't a perfect kid. I didn't get straight A's or I didn't have a ton of friends. So my parents should have treated me that way. Or, you know, all that shame. And um, if you didn't know, shame is the belief that something like is inherently wrong with us. So all of that shame that comes from the abuse is feeding this, what I would call false belief, right? This uh, lie that we've we tell ourselves that we must have deserved it. And again, it's just an adaptive way to cope with the abuse. It's okay. Nothing's wrong with you for feeling that way. It's actually incredibly normal. Let your therapist know this is coming up because when it comes to moving on from this, it, I know this sounds really crazy to just say it this way, but in that process of reparenting yourself, this stuff will untangle. Meaning that as we talk through and we acknowledge what happened to us and and have a therapist that can validate and um, notice when we're trying to minimize and check our facts and push back against that, having a therapist that can do that will help us kind of stay out of this like pit of despair, the shame spiral thinking like, well, I deserved it, right? I did, you know, they'll catch that stuff so that we can ensure that we're still able to push through, reparent, and also acknowledge all the you know, the ripple effects of this abuse, because essentially that's that's a symptom of your abuse. And a therapist that can man- that is understands trauma in any way will be able to help you with that. So you don't have to move on or untangle this. I, I believe it will come out and untangle itself in that reparenting work with a therapist who listens and understands and catches us before we get into that shame spiral. Um yeah. And also, I think it just as a side note, something that I don't talk about enough is that it is okay and totally normal to feel more than one thing at a time. I hear all the time from my patients and a lot of members of our community where they're like, I don't know, I felt angry, but also like excited. And then I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? Right. We can think something's crazy. Like, well, I miss them, but also I hate them. That can't be right. I must be going crazy. I've heard different versions of this over and over and over, but I'm here to tell you that we we are complex creatures. We are able to hold a feeling of anger while at the same time holding a feeling of love. And I know that we think those are like opposing emotions, 
but we're very complex. I can, we can feel both things, right? We can have someone harm us. Like I'm trying to think of, um, okay, here's a good example. My dad, I don't know if you guys know, um, but when I was growing up, he worked away from home a lot. He was a, a foreman, um, on huge industrial projects. And so he would be gone for sometimes months at a time managing these projects. And anyways, he would miss things because he was gone. And it became, it was a huge chunk of work that I did in therapy is managing his like inconsistency. And the fact that like sometimes jobs, he would think he's going to be home this week and then the job would get finished in time, right? So he'd be stuck for another couple of weeks or something. And he'd miss like a play I was in or a sporting, a, a game, a big tournament or something. Anyways, um, I could both be mad at my dad, be angry that he missed it and hurt at the same time and also love him deeply and be excited when he does come home. And those things can all happen at the same time. And no, that doesn't make me crazy. It's complex, right? Relationships are complex. The relationship we have with ourselves is complex. The relationship we have with others is complex. It's very, I guess, complicated for lack of a better term. And it's okay to feel all of those things. And I think the key is actually in acknowledging that we feel all of those things instead of getting caught up on the one that feels the most uncomfortable or feels the most maybe, you know, quote unquote, wrong to us, if that makes sense. Okay, I won't get into that too much. Moving on to the final question on question number one. It says, I find this specifically difficult as it feels like as much as I could reparent myself, it's never going to be the same as having the mother figure that I long for. It would just be myself or someone I'm trying to get to fill that role, which makes it hard to come to terms with. I know there's this belief that like it'll never be as good. And I think I could I could agree with that statement in the same way that like it's always better if things weren't fucked up from the beginning, right? No one would disagree with that. It'd be better if our parents didn't suck. Period. We could always say that. Um and all of our parents sucked in some way, right? So yes it is, it would be better if it never happened. But I am here to tell you that through therapy, and and honestly, I think we can all benefit from inner child work. There's always something that happened that was like really difficult. I was in this class in college and it was essentially like group therapy. And we were challenged to like share different stories about ourselves that we felt helped us. I forget the term my the teacher at the time used, but it was like that helped make us who we are or helped us. Anyway, um, a defining moment, I think is what he called it. Anyway, as we went around the room and everybody shared their different stories, story after story was some kind of something that a parent did or didn't do that had a, a, an intense effect on us. Because as much as our parents might try to do things correctly or not, right? Some just suck. But as much as they may, might try, there's still going to be ways they mess up. And so, yes, it'd be nice if they didn't. But that doesn't mean that we can't heal and move on and live a wonderful life. And so through therapy, working with the right therapist and navigating this inner child reparenting stuff, Roxy's growling in her sleep if you hear. <laughs> she doesn't like reparenting either. Um, ooh, but doing that work can really help us heal and you can get to a place where you do feel better. And those hangups that came from not having a loving, supportive parent are gone. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, I know Roxy's quite the distraction. Um, but let's focus, let's finish this. So 
Yes, it would have been better if it wasn't fucked up from the beginning, but I'm here to tell you that you can go on to live a wonderful life having processed it. And I feel like in a way, and maybe this is just me trying to make like lemonade out of lemons, but I always feel like that understanding that we get from doing this work helps us be like a, not just a deeper person, but have a deeper understanding of like what makes us tick. And I think that emotional intelligence allows us to be a better friend, a better colleague, a better partner, and just an overall like better person. I always think it's like out of these shitty situations that we grow the most and I don't know, like have more appreciation for the things in life and more appreciation for ourselves. And yeah, anyway, I won't get too into that. But anyways, it it is hard to come to terms with, but I'm telling you, you can speak about all of these concerns in therapy and know that you can go on to live a wonderful life. With that, let's move on to question number two. And this question says, hi, Katie, and happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, is it possible to quote unquote fake mental health problems and trauma responses? I was neglected as a child and now I find myself wanting to feel bad and making myself myself feel bad or look bad just so that my therapist sees it. I'm also overly attached to him. Maybe I'm just devaluating my traumas, but I sometimes feel like I'm exaggerating my reactions to do it because I don't think that they were that bad. When talking to my therapist, I want him to notice how I'm suffering, but I can't differentiate how much I actually am and how much I'm pretending. For example, when I talk about a hard subject, I notice all the little things that I do with my body, like fidgeting, shaking, breathing differently, making myself small, but I'm not sure if I actually feel them or only act on them. I've been acting since I was little and I'm very good at it. I used to even do method acting as well. Also, I noticed that I like people or characters in movies more if they have suffered. Am I only creating this character that that has these issues because I am too attached and I crave attention? Great question. Now, overall, we aren't good. We can't fake mental health problems. We can't fake trauma. You were neglected as a child. And instead of looking at this as blaming yourself, Because that's so common, right? The shame associated with trauma is so deep that even our reactions to it, we blame ourselves for, right? You're already like, am I doing this on purpose? This is, okay, so let's just pause that crazy whirlwind of a thought, the shame spiral you're caught in. Let's hit pause. Let's track this back. You were neglected as a child. Let's just think about that. When you needed loving support and kindness and probably someone listening and offering their insights and, you know, being comforting when you needed it. When you were needing all those things, you didn't get it. So of course we would crave attention. Does that make you bad? No. Does that make you weird? No. Attention is a human need. It's something that we all require. I know, again, it's one of those words we've made it into like a bad connotation, I feel like I should create a video with all of these like quote unquote bad terms because there's so many of them, right? That we have, they have a bad connotation associated with them. We assume that they're a bad thing, but attachment, attention, these are all things that we need. It's what we're primed for as children. And so if you were neglected, of course you craved attention. Now, could we be making ourselves out to be worse than we actually are? It's possible. Is that a shameful, bad thing? No, it's really important that you tell your therapist that you think this might be happening because 
it's kind of part of the trauma response. Because you were neglected, probably the only way you got any attention, if it even worked, was by like reacting or overreacting to what was happening or making things out to be way worse than they probably were because your parents did not respond to this normal upset, right? And so instead of looking at this as like, it's me, I'm doing something, let's see this as what it is, is a symptom of your trauma. So what purpose did this serve and why is it still in our life? Now, I could tell you that it's happening right now because you want your therapist's attention. And that's okay too. It's kind of, again, it's part of the trauma response. Now, also, so that's one layer of it. Also, you hit the nail on the head with maybe I'm just devalidating my traumas. Of course, you're going to minimize, you're going to invalidate what happened to you because, again, your parents never made anything out to be a big deal, never gave you the attention or comfort that you needed. And so we're thinking, well, I'm just made this into a bigger deal. Cause like, especially when it comes to emotional neglect, we can look around at our situation and be like, well, our parents did feed us and they did get us, get me to school. And I even went to like a private school maybe, or like I had always had the clothes that I wanted, all that stuff. But guess what? They weren't there emotionally for us, maybe even physically for us. We were completely neglected. And I have some friends and pa- patients over the years who, you know, had, uber wealthy or extremely um, successful parents that worked a lot. And so they were kind of left to their own devices. One of my um, patients years ago was sent off to boarding school because her parents were like always gone. They were corporate lawyers and like flew all over the place and were like never home. And so that neglect that she sustained became, it like found itself into all parts of her life. And so again, I'm just bringing this up to say that you were neglected this is a symptom of that trauma, of that abuse. Yes, you're probably invalidating your traumas also. That's another layer of this. So I would let your therapist know that this is happening and that you, you're concerned about exaggerating your reactions. Um, and I'm also not surprised that you're an actor and do method acting and things because, of course, it would be nice to slip inside someone else's uh, life story and personality, right? Because ours wasn't much to get excited about. It was harmful and void of the love and support that we needed. Um, And so pretending is better. It's more comfortable. Um, Anyways, I won't get into that too much, but I think that no, it's not possible to fake your mental health problems. Yes, it is very possible that we are exaggerating our reactions. It's possible. Do I know if it's happening? No, but the reason is more important. It's That's not a bad thing. The reason that you're doing it is the thing that we need to dig into. And that's, you know, it's like the cause. It's, again, we're looking at symptoms and we need to look at the root. And the root is that you were abused. You were neglected, which is abuse. So there's a trauma in your life and we're acting out of that. Frankly, because we don't really know how else to act. Let your therapist know. I don't believe you're creating all these issues. I believe we're having a tough time coming to terms with the fact that we were abused, that there was a trauma And we don't know how to react because of that. I hope that makes sense. Okay. There were a bunch of comments on this as well. And the first comment says, I understand what you're saying completely. I often dissociate in sessions when talking about tough stuff. And I often wonder if I'm faking it. I know it feels more comfortable to zone out, but I do feel like I have so much control over it that I just prefer to stay in. Does this mean I'm faking it? No. Dissociation is a coping skill. Essentially, by you allowing yourself to dissociate, you're utilizing that coping skill. You're looking at your toolbox and you're like, that one doesn't work, that one doesn't work, oh, this one works, and you're doing it. That would be the same as you choosing to journal instead. It just doesn't feel 
like a choice because it's a maladaptive coping skill, meaning it doesn't actually help us with anything. It just gives us like a break. It's like a pause button. We're like, this is overwhelming. I'm going to hit pause. I have a ton of patients and viewers who've told me over the years that they prefer to be dissociated or to zone out. And so it's very normal to just want to do that and to want to stay in it longer because it's kind of like the space out zone, right? Again, it's that pause button. We're like, hit pause on my emotions, hit pause on my flashbacks, hit pause on this stressful situation. Or that's why I always call it like your brain pulling the ripcord. It's like, I'm out of here. It doesn't want to be present. It doesn't mean you're faking it. It's a coping skill. It just means that it's your go-to one. You're using it a lot. Okay, now another question says, this sounds uh, alike, but is a little more BPD focused. That's okay. How do I know if my trauma symptoms and dissociation are actually happening or if I just imagine them so hard to get attention unconsciously that they feel real? I feel like maybe I just exaggerate my fear of things, reminding me of my father or that I could pull myself out of a dissociative seizure if I would just try harder. Everyone, not literally, but emotionally, tells me that people with BPD do everything just for attention. How do I know which is which? It's a great question. Now, the truth about it is it doesn't really matter. Again, going back to what I said, this is these are symptoms of our trauma, right? These are symptoms or like even BPD is often born out of trauma, most commonly, not always, but I would, I mean, I would argue like 90% of the people I've treated with borderline personality disorder also have a trauma past. And that's why uh, co- uh, complex PTSD or CPTSD and BPD have so much overlap. They are different in many ways, but there's a lot of overlap because they're both trauma-based, right? Now, how would you know if your trauma symptoms and dissociation are actually happening or if you're just imagining them so hard to get attention? Again, I just, you cannot make up your trauma symptoms. You cannot make up dissociation. You can choose to go into it. But I'm here to tell you that if like all of a sudden right now is like, I want to dissociate that, how would I go about that? If you can tell me exactly how I'd go about that and I, you could like give me these step-by-step instructions so that I could do it too. If you can do that, then maybe, but I'm hard pressed to find someone who can describe to me how I can do it. You can say how it happens to you, but how would I do it, right? How would someone just all of a sudden decide to do that? Again, we cannot fake a mental illness. And also, why would we, right? It feels shitty. Why would we want to feel shitty? So there's that. Um, And then exaggerating your fear of things. um, You could be exaggeration. It's not even exaggeration. It's like that uh, reactivity or being really um, sensitive to things. Again, not a bad word, right? Sensitivity is always given a bad rep and it's not a bad thing. Um, But that can be part of our BPD because I think of BPD again, I've talked about it as like being an emotional burn victim, right? We can be really sensitive to things. Uh, Small slights from people that... someone without BPD could think, well, that's not that big of a deal, hurt my feelings, but I'll move on. But someone with BPD, it wounds them and we're we're affected maybe all day, next day. It can cause us to be impulsive, to lash out, right? So again, what it feels like for us is the reality. And it's, we, we can't really compare it to other people. And that exaggeration of your, your fears or the way that you're responding could be a symptom of your BPD. And also, okay, and then to get to the final part of this, like they say that every the people with BPD do everything for attention. Again, attention's not a bad thing. I don't know why people say that attention is, you know, like 
needing attention means that something's wrong with us or something's bad. Attention is something we all need. And people with BPD in particular need it a lot because we fear that people are going to leave us. And so we need a lot of affirmations. We need a lot of attention to remind us that people actually care because we just never really trust that they do. And so now that we've talked about all of that, how do I know which is which? They're probably very intertwined. I guess from a therapeutic standpoint, the questions I would have if we needed to tease this out, which I don't necessarily know if we do, you can have PTSD and BPD, but to kind of tease out where it's coming from, is it based on the fear that someone's going to leave you? Then I would put it in the BPD category. Or is this based on the struggle to validate what happened or our urge to minimize our pain? Is it coming from there? Is it coming from just reactivity to our environment because everything feels overwhelming? That'd be more PTSD, right? And that would be kind of how I would, as you kind of parse through what you're experiencing, that'd be how I'd decide on which bucket. But again, there might be ones in the middle that you're like, I don't really know. It goes in this middle bucket because it doesn't quite fit. And that's part of your personal experience. That's why I say everyone's experience is different. Sure, we can have some symptoms that definitely fit into these clean buckets of, oh, that's a BPD symptom. Oh, that's a PTSD symptom. But then there's going to be things that's like, because maybe we have both, we're like, I don't know, this feels like something weird. It's just me. And that's okay too. Um, Yeah, I hope that helps. I don't know if I explained that very well, but I hope so. Now, the final part of this says, I do the same thing. I feel like I'm hyper aware of everything that I do in therapy. And sometimes I don't know if I just recognize my actions or if I'm placing them for my therapist to notice. The anxiety that comes out of this is crazy because I feel so guilty and like I can't trust myself or like I'm a fake person. Could this be an OCD related thing also? Now, obviously, we've kind of talked about all of the parts of this, except for that OCD component. So can this be an OCD related thing too? The only reason it would be OCD is if, now just remember, obsessive compulsive disorder is when we obsess about something. It's usually like a worry, right? Because it's anxiety based. So we have an intense worry about if I don't check the, I don't know, the stove 10 times, the house is going to burn down. Or if I don't do an even number of things, I was just watching this show Love Life on HBO and this guy is doing pull-ups and he says, if I don't do an even number, the whole world's going to explode. Now it's very he says it so quickly and they move on to something else, but that's like an OCD thing is thinking something bad is going to happen if we don't do things a certain amount of times or in a certain way. So, and then once we do the thing, the compulsion, then the anxiety reduces, right? So I've checked 10 times. I know the stove isn't on. I am okay for a little bit. And then we start again. Um, Now, I do not believe that this hyper awareness of things that you do in therapy is OCD related unless you feel this like buildup of anxiety and then this release when you do certain things. That would be for you to kind of be curious about, be a detective about your symptoms, and that would tell you whether or not it is related to OCD because everybody's kind of different, right? But only you are going to know if you experience that up and down. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And this question reads, can you talk more about quiet BPD? Most videos I see online are about the outward expressions of BPD rather than those who turn those actions inward towards themselves. What are some examples of quiet BPD and how could someone share what they're experiencing with their therapist when most categorize BPD by those stereotypical outward actions and responses? Um, First of all, I have an older video about quiet BPD, and I want you all to know I am currently creating a new one after receiving this question. I was like, wow, it's been a long time since I've talked about this, so I will create another one. Um, It's okay to just tell your therapist that you think this is what is happening. 
You can even just say, you know, I know I'm not a therapist or a psychologist or whatever, whoever you're seeing, but these are some symptoms that line up for me. And I don't know if you've heard of quiet BPD or what you think, but could you at least mark it down and then check on it and let me know? It's okay to ask those questions. You know what's happening for you best. We are just, you know, educated professionals supposed to take that information and try to make sense of it and offer some assistance, right? So don't feel like you can't share what you're experiencing or questions or concerns that you have because those are incredibly valuable. And without that, honestly, therapists cannot do their jobs, okay? So just know that you can just ask it just the way you asked it here. Now, I want to share some some symptoms of quiet BPD. For anybody who doesn't understand it, a lot of uh, borderline personality disorder-based symptoms are like outward expressions, like splitting, if you don't know, is like kind of that all or nothing. People are either all good or all bad. Um, We can do some manipulation tactics to try to get people to prove to us that they're not going to leave us. Remember, because one of the key symptoms of BPD is fear of abandonment. And those with quiet BPD still have that. It's just expressed very differently. And the way that quiet BPD people can engage in relationships kind of looks a lot like people pleasing or fawning behavior because they can struggle, like have really unhealthy boundaries, meaning pretty much like no boundaries. Um, You can become obsessed with like specific people, want to spend as much time as possible with that person. You can also like isolate a lot or avoid people. And that's kind of that like opposite, right? Like the outward expression for a lot of people, BPD might be to like get into relationships or use that splitting behavior. But people with quiet BPD often don't want anything to do with anybody because it's just too painful or the risk is too high. Um, Self-injury could be part of the quiet BPD. I, I often, I think it can be a part of both, but I see it with, I don't even want to say with more, uh, frequency, but I, I see it a lot in my quiet BPD patients. Um, you can also like, it can be really passive aggressive, kind of giving the silent treatment, stonewalling, things that are like, it's a passive aggressive versus being outwardly aggressive, right? Um, people with quiet BPD can struggle with like suicidal thoughts, um, you know, feeling hopeless a lot and being like, and then again, turning that anger inward, right? Because quiet BPD is more of those inward things. We can be extremely like hyper, hyper critical of ourselves and the way that we interact with other people, um, things that we've done. We essentially just trash talk ourselves all the time. Um, intense fear of rejection. And, and those are a lot of the the kind of symptoms of quiet BPD and how it can look. Now, the question on this was like, how do you... Uh, so those are just some of some examples. So hopefully that kind of helps. And let your therapist know that you think this is going on. Explain some of those symptoms and how you think it lines up and ask them what they think. I think the best way to kind of like, if you're worried that your therapist will get defensive, which I'm just going to throw it out there, a good therapist should never get defensive in session. But if you're concerned about that, I think always just following up with like, well, that's my, those are my thoughts or that's my experience. What do you think? you know, and just kind of pushing it off to them for them to offer their insights and thoughts should kind of alleviate that. Now, there was a comment on this that says, yes, such a good question. I was shocked to learn that there were four categories for BPD presentations. Now, I made a note of this. I don't know if there are four and they even had a question mark after this. I've, I'm going to do some deep research. It will take me a little bit of time to see what they're talking about when it comes to this because it's not in the DSM, which we all know the DSM it start, it's a good start, but it's not the full picture. Um, but the question here says, is it harder to diagnose 
or suspect BPD in, in a person with quiet BPD? For me, I have to be honest, no. Because in session, usually see it's the same. Yes, some like obviously it's not as uh, vocal or outward in the expressions, but a lot of the the reasons behind it are still very similar. And it might be because I work uh, like when I had a full private practice, a lot of it was BPD. And when I worked in the eating disorder treatment centers, a lot of it was BPD. So I kind of feel like I can sniff it out on people, like even people that I meet in life. I'm always like, oh, yeah, I think they have some of those tendencies, you know, like I'm not diagnosing people, but like some of the reactions or responses to people, I'm like, oh, that feels like that to me. Like my spidey senses have been, you know, hit. But um, I think for most clinicians, if we don't talk about self-injury and we don't um, show them or talk to them about without realizing it, like splitting behavior then yes, it's going to be very hard for us to be properly diagnosed. And I find for a lot of people, BPD, like borderline personality disorder, is often misdiagnosed. And it can be misdiagnosed as um, border, uh, bipolar disorder. For a lot of people, they get diagnosed with um, you know bipolar 1 or bipolar 2, which is you can have them both. But I'm just saying that sometimes instead of getting diagnosed with BPD, we're diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, And there's a lot of other overlaps and things that can, it's a little complex, like PTSD can have overlap, depression um, can have overlap. So a lot of times people can be misdiagnosed. And I think honestly, to properly diagnose someone with uh, BPD, we need to see them for, I mean, ideally a year, but at the very least six months, because I kind of want to see more patterns of behavior because things, I don't even like they're called personality disorders. I just feel like that's just not a good term. But for personality disorders, we need to see people for like a period of time to see if there are patterns of behavior because these go deeper than, oh, um, I have depressive symptoms for two weeks, right? We're looking for for more uh, relational patterns throughout their life. And so we're going to need more information and that can take time to gather. Okay, now another question on this says, hi, Katie, I'm not sure if this is related, but I have a question about quiet BPD. I've been self-diagnosing myself with BPD for years. I know it's not always the best choice, but I'm pretty sure of myself. I have a video about self-diagnosis and I think it's it's important, but it's not the full picture. You, again, know your experience best. And then, you know, the clinician ensures that the diagnosis you're coming up with or considering is actually appropriate because we might have a, not might, we we have a knowledge that you don't and you have a knowledge we don't. And together, like with our powers combined, we can get the best, you know, diagnosis or treatment, right? Okay. It says, I brought up the possibility of BPD with my therapist and she said, I just don't seem borderline and more just depressed, which is possible. I guess I trust her judgment because she's mainly a DBT therapist. Oh, so then, yep, she knows, she knows BPD well, but this is still super invalidating. I fit all but one criterion for BPD, but I guess since I'm only 15, could I just be a moody teen? Is quiet BPD like my situation, like someone who just doesn't seem borderline, but still struggles the same? I'm searching for answers now because I'm seriously doubting myself. Again, I'm sorry if this isn't entirely related. It's okay. It's it's part of the conversation. You're 15. I would argue, my hypothesis is, you cannot be diagnosed with a personality disorder until you're 18. They will say that you have some like symptoms or some, you know, similarities to it or anything like that, but not, they can't diagnose you technically until you're 18. 
that's why the DSM and, you know, things like that are kind of limiting because that's just part of like the rules of it. That's part of the diagnostic criterion. So I would tell you that the pro- the reason your therapist is probably saying this is because you're 15. And you could ask that. Say, hey, I I still think that this, you know, fits for me. Um, is it because I'm 15 that I can't be diagnosed with it? Because I know it's like an 18 and over. Um, I'm surprised she doesn't say, oh, you have some tendencies. But... I don't know. You'd have to ask her, ask her because it's not, that's where it's like important to ha- continue having conversations. It's not just that you say, Hey, I think I have this. And your therapist says, no, I think you have this. That conversation should continue where you're like, well, can you explain to me why you think it's depression? And when she ticks through the things, you can say, well, yeah, that's all true. But I also have this, 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 this. That's why I think it's BPD. You could talk about it and you could even say, I think it's more quiet BPD, meaning I don't express a lot of those symptoms outwardly. It's things I do internally Um, and then explain to her what you mean, which internal symptoms are you experiencing and talk it out because I don't want you to feel invalidated. And I also know that, you know, it is with both of your expertise, your expertise of yourself and hers of the mental health space and DBT and BPD that you come to the proper diagnosis. Now, it might not be BPD. It might be major depressive disorder. That doesn't mean that you, it doesn't warrant help. That doesn't mean that you, you know, can't also still utilize some of the DBT tools. They're super beneficial for everybody. But continue that conversation because a moody teen doesn't, I mean, I don't know what your symptoms are, but a moody teen doesn't self-injure. A moody teen doesn't uh, struggle to get out of bed. A moody teen doesn't have, uh, I don't know, uh, impulsive urges. I mean, I guess kind of teens do in a little bit because our brain's not fully developed, so it can be a little bit more impulsive. But we don't struggle with like um, uh, boundaries in a big way. Like there are a lot of other symptoms. But I think because teenage years are so complicated and complex with hormones and development, I think that's why we don't diagnose personality disorders at that time, because it can look and feel like a lot of things. Um, so just talk to her about it and and ask if it's because you're a moody teen and see what symptoms line up. It's okay to keep having that conversation, okay? Your uh, view or your perspective is important. It's not just what she thinks. It's also what you think. So bring it up and talk about it again. Um, yeah, Okay. Another question on this is, I don't know if this is related enough, so um, seriously, no seriously, no worries if it isn't, but if it is, I'd love to know what you think. I feel like most expressions or most outward expressions of BPD come as a response to attachment. Does BPD always have to include attachment or include relationships? No. I have many qualities such as self-harm, inward anger, unstable self-image, feeling empty, suicidal ideation, mood instability, basically everything but attachment. Says maybe I'm on the other end of the spectrum with having no attachment, but I do not get attached to friends or romantic interests easily at all. I have a very strong one to my mom, but that um, but that's it. It never shows up anywhere else. Does BPD have to include extreme attachment, or is that what quiet BPD is? All the symptoms don't even relate to relationships or attachment. It's not about attachment. It's fear of abandonment. So. 
Like I was saying earlier, uh, the quiet BPD person usually isolates. Now, the fact that you're uh, you're extremely attached to your mom, I'd be interested like if she wasn't reachable or if she was like inconsistent with you, what that would feel like and what that would trigger. But I find with quiet BPD, a lot of my patients just like don't let anybody get close because of the fear of what that could bring and how that could cause us to feel, right? It can feel very out of control. And so, Yeah. Those are my thoughts. It doesn't always include attachment, but that fear of abandonment can cause us, it's almost like we can react one of two ways. And obviously everyone's experience is different, but one of two general ways is um, wanting to get people really close, having no boundaries, kind of just like latching on really quickly and then using splitting behavior and feeling kind of like dysregulated all the time because of that. Or we can isolate and not put ourselves in any position to have anybody near us because that's too risky. And even in our... um, like we just kind of stay at home because even interacting with people just could cause us to feel that way and we don't want to feel that way and so we can it's like these two extremes get attached to everybody don't get attached to anybody and both i believe come from the same place which is fear of abandonment okay so ask yourself that question like you know do you worry about people hurting you is that is that pain the reason that you stay so isolated or that not that pain but that the possibility of that pain the next comment says hi i also wonder if quiet bpd and functional bpd are the same or different plus when you look at the internet you only hear the extreme symptoms of bpd but i don't think everyone has all of them so what makes a person have quiet bpd or just bpd now i don't know of a term called functional bpd my hypothesis is that when we have some symptoms but not all or we're able to manage those symptoms that they'd call that functional BPD. It'd be like when it's a very low grade um, symptomology. And I don't mean that in any diminishing capacity. I'm not saying it's like not as bad or doesn't feel as icky for you. I'm just saying that, that the symptoms are not as intense. And I would, I, I would think that that could be very similar to quiet BPD because it's, there's no outward expression. So people don't really know. Right. So there could be that. Um, but to answer the question, because a lot of people like to create all these different like subsets of things and it's not always clear. And I feel like you can Google search and look at a shit ton of blogs written by people who maybe aren't professionals and it can get kind of complicated. So I'm always wary of like a different term added on to a diagnosis. Okay, so the question, what makes a person have quiet BPD or just BPD? The truth is, it's us. How do we react or respond to our environment and people around us? Was our family very passive aggressive? Was fighting or having conflict really like uncomfortable? Did nobody do it? Did we not really know how to communicate an upset without it turning into a big fight maybe? Or did we not get any attention or affection if we didn't make a big fuss? Um, what was it, right? And so depending on what was going on and how we reacted to it, we could act in different ways. We could be more internally um, harmful or more externally harmful and loud. Um, and so, yeah, and a lot of people can have traits. I said, I heard some of us don't qualify to have BPD have traits. A lot of us can have a lot of traits of different mental illnesses and not fully be diagnosed. Now, does that mean that our pain is less important? No. Does that mean that we don't warrant treatment? No. It just means that we don't fit the criteria, which is like such a a silly kind of thing that we have leaned on for so many years that I'm hoping will kind of go away. I heard that the DSM isn't going to create any new DSMs like they're done now. So maybe we'll shy away from that and get more into like each person's individual issues and work on treating that. I think it's so much more effective. But 
anyways, those are the difference. And I think, did I talk about everything? The extreme symptoms? Yeah. A lot of people have traits and those are still important to acknowledge and treat in therapy. And that's why I think DBT can help a lot of us. That's dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. It's an incredibly effective treatment for more than just BPD, but I think all of us need a little emotion regulation from time to time and some interpersonal effectiveness, like ways that we can better communicate with people that we love. I think all of that is beneficial to all of us. Okay. Final add-on says, I'm not sure if my question is related, but if my therapist tells me that I have a borderline part inside of me, but I don't have borderline, does this mean that it's just quiet borderline? Because I really don't act out because I'm so scared of losing control, but I still have basically all the symptoms of BPD. In the first session of in the first session, my therapist told me that I don't seem to have BPD. But how can a therapist tell this when only knowing a patient for a few minutes? Is this because I maybe have quiet BPD or which indicators would give you, oh, or which indicators would give you as a therapist enough information to tell that someone doesn't have BPD? Now, it sounds like your old therapist thought that you probably had some traits, meaning you have a couple of the symptoms, but again, don't meet the full criteria. That sounds like what they probably thought. And that's, like I said, that affects a lot of us. That's very common. It's okay. It doesn't make your issues or your concerns any less important. Okay. Your new therapist, who doesn't know you very well, doesn't think you have it at all. And I think that they don't know within a few minutes, but some people, I don't know. I mean, if you brought it up, they're going to give you their best guess for now. But like I said, I think in order to properly diagnose people, we need to see them for a while. And with BPD, I think at least six months. And I know that might be difficult for some people and some therapists think, I know right away. You might, if a patient comes in like floridly psychotic, you're going to know they have some psychosis. Or if someone is manic, you're going to know that they have bipolar disorder. But by and large, we can have like a hypothesis. And then we're just you know, kind of interviewing, having our therapy sessions are kind of like interviews where we're being detectives as therapists, being a detective to try to figure out what symptoms apply to you and what we think is really going on. So I would give this time. I don't think that your therapist, your new therapist knows yet. Um, If you signed a release so they can talk to your old therapist, they might have a different view. But to get into the final part of this says, um, what indicators would give you as a therapist enough information to tell that someone doesn't have BPD? I guess if there were no, I don't know, it's hard, like a self-injury is an indicator sometimes, not always, but self-injury is something I look out for and suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts in the past. Also kind of this impulsivity. I look for that. If that's not there. Um, Also, I don't know how to explain this in a way that is going to make sense. But when a a patient struggles with fear of abandonment and has attachment issues, I can feel it. I know that sounds weird, but as a therapist, it's like, at the beginning, my BPD patients usually try to be the perfect patient. And this is because they, if you guys don't know, when we fear abandonment, we, and we're kind of like these regular, and I don't mean regular, but like the outward expressions of BPD, because we're talking a lot about quiet, like internal, more isolated, um, in the traditional form where it's like outward expressions, my BPD patients try to be the perfect patient at the beginning because they want me to like, quote unquote, let them in. And they think that by doing that, it's almost like love bombing in a weird way. It's not the same as as love bombing and narcissism, but it's similar where it's like they want to be perfect so that then they feel like they can be accepted. And then they start to like dream a dream of the attachment and the connection that we have. 
And this builds for a little while and I can just feel it. I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's like that sensation of knowing that someone really wants to be connected, but knows that it's like not socially acceptable yet. And that kind of push pull that they do emotionally for themselves, I can like experience it with them in the room. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because I've worked a lot with BPD patients, but I can just feel that, that urge, that attachment need. And it also usually comes out like, depending on, so I've had some patients over the years who had like horrible breakups with all their past therapists and they talk about how bad it was. Um, and that's always suspicious. Um, and then, or I'll have somebody who's like, yeah, I just left my therapist. Brand. I don't, I didn't want to work with her. Like very impulsive. You know, there's certain things that like red flags where I'm like, oh, interesting. I'm like jotting things down and taking notes. So those are things I would look for. So if someone didn't have any of those things, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't automatically assume someone would have BPD. I wouldn't go down that that route unless there was something that made me think that they did. Okay, I hope that helps. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hi, Katie. I was do- diagnosed with complex PTSD a year and a half ago, and I've been told by my primary and secondary therapist, along with two other mental health professionals, that it is not BPD. I've been self-diagnosing because I have fear of abandonment, which my therapists know. I experienced emotional abuse, emotional neglect, and have memories of physical abandonment. Is it possible to have fear of abandonment in other mental health disorders if it's not BPD? Now, diagnostically speaking, I do not know of another diagnosis that has fear of abandonment when we're adults. I know in children, there can be other things. I don't know of any. So I, based on what you've told me, I would I'm very suspicious as well, as it sounds like you are, because complex PTSD, the only main difference between it, I mean, there's a, there's a few nuances, but the main difference between BPD and complex PTSD is that BPD has that fear of abandonment and complex PTSD does not. And you can have both at the same time, um, especially because you have abuse in your past. I'm surprised because again, BPD is born out of abuse usually, hence why we can have PTSD and have BPD. Um in my experience, I do not know. If anybody else knows, leave it in the comments. Let's help each other because I've never had those symptoms not be associated with BPD. So I I mean, you said that your your mental health professionals don't believe it to be true. Ask them why. Ask them why it's not BPD. Say that you thought that a fear of abandonment was always attached to that because again, I just can't I can think of like adjustment disorders and stuff, but that be that would go away pretty quickly. Yeah, I just cannot, I cannot think of another one. Maybe I'm missing something, but yeah, I, I I really think that you might have BPD. But again, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to diagnose you. You ask your professionals, they seem to have thoughts about it. So question them, ask them, say, I know I have this. And I thought this was the main difference. How come you don't think it's BPD? And they might say, well, you only have that one symptom. There's nothing else that's like it. And so just having just that one symptom is not BPD on its own. Does that make sense too? So you might just have that one trait and that might be just one little component and not the full picture. So ask them. It's okay to get some clarification and better understanding. Now there was a comment that said, in addition, what do BPD and complex PTSD have in common and where do they differ? I've heard that they are often misdiagnosed as each other. They are. Like I said, I have an entire video about it. You could just put BPD versus CPTSD, Katie Morton in the search, and it should pull up that video. Um, but the way that the thing that they have in common is uh, is a lot of things. Pretty much, 
Almost all of it, except for people with BPD, have the fear of abandonment. They also engage in splitting behavior, which I don't find so much so in complex PTSD. And But the thing that people struggle with is when we have complex PTSD, we can really struggle in relationships because it's hard for us to trust people. We can be really impulsive and really reactive because of our hypervigilance and our trauma response, essentially. Um, but that's really the difference. Everything else is pretty much the same. Um, yeah. And oh, I guess another key difference would people with BPD don't have like flashbacks. Remember, PTSD or complex PTSD is born out of trauma and BPD can be also, right? But this this would be a differentiator that would be part of the PTSD is if we um, have flashbacks of, of trauma that occurred in our past and we avoid things that remind us of the trauma, kind of like the crux of each diagnosis is different. So PTSD is like the key diagnose or criteria is that like avoidance of things that remind us of the trauma and flashbacks, things like that. BPD is that fear of abandonment. Um, And so, yes, I hope that kind of helps tease it out, but I have a whole video about it where I kind of walk you through the criteria and how they're different and how they're the same. But I think that like the reason that they can feel and look a lot alike is because of that easy dysregulation, right? We can feel really reactive to our environment, which people will notice and see. We struggle with our sense of self and our relationships can suffer, right? There can be a lot of those types of things. Suicidal thoughts, depressive symptoms can come in with both of those as well, as well as self-injury. Self-injury is not, I know diagnostically they put it with BPD only, but I find it in a lot of different mental illnesses. And so those can often, that's why they can often be misdiagnosed as each other. And I also believe a lot of people with BPD also have some form of PTSD. And I think that's kind of why there's always a, a difficulty there too. Now, there was another comment that I also have a follow-up if it's related closely enough. Um, I have other diagnoses officially. I have PTSD, anxiety, depression, ADHD, and an eating disorder, but I constantly believe that I actually have BPD. And I've mentioned it to my therapist and she doesn't think so. And I accept it and move on, but it constantly enters my head. How would you rule out BPD? Like I have problems with emotion regulation, impulsivity, self-harm, low self-esteem, fear of rejection and abandonment to the point where I'll just lie to get people to care about me. But the strange thing is I don't really have unstable relationships, I don't think, but I feel so sure that I have BPD. So why does my therapist think that I don't? Should I get a second opinion? Does it even really matter? Like is BPD a diagnosis where knowing changes treatment? It depends. Some some therapists, because BPD can be so stigmatized and it can affect our ability to get care and to have consistent care. I know it sucks. I'm not condoning this. It's just like kind of part of the truth. Some will be reluctant to diagnosis with it. Um, so that could be it. You could ask your therapist like why they don't think so. I already mentioned in a previous comment, like how I would rule it out or like honestly how I rule it in tells you how I'd rule it out. So a lot of the symptoms that you talk about sound like BPD, but I it doesn't mean that we have the full criteria. You know, we meet all the criteria, but it sounds like you do. I'm like looking, thinking in my head, like checkbox, checkbox, checkbox. I think your suspicions, you know, warrant a possible second opinion. It only matters if it matters to you. And if you feel like the treatment that you're receiving has been beneficial because DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, is really the only therapeutic treatment that is like uh, made exclusively for BPD. Now it can be helpful for everybody, but I'm just saying it was created by Marsha Linehan because she has BPD and 
essentially no treatments were really helping. And so she created it. And so that could change the path that you go on for recovery. And so that's why it would matter from a treatment standpoint. But if you already feel like your treatment has been helpful and effective, it only matters if it matters to you. So you have to take a minute to just consider, does it really matter? Um, Diagnoses and and getting them can be great because it can be validating, but it also can follow us on our medical paperwork for a while. Not everybody likes that. And so we can maybe not want that. I've had plenty of patients over my years that like want to pay cash, don't want to super bill, don't want to bill it to insurance. They don't want any record of anything like that. And I respect that as well. So it just kind of depends on what you would, what's most important to you. But it sounds very much like BPD, like all of your symptoms. So, and, and it's okay, like I said, to ask and to question why they think this and not that. It's also okay to get a second opinion if it's important to you, okay? Now, um, this final question on, in the uh, comments says, I have a similar question. How do you tell the difference between BPD and CPTSD when it comes to mood changes and fear of abandonment? I've started getting help for my complex trauma from childhood through adulthood, abuse from my parents, and then domestic abuse. And since starting, I've noticed my moods fluctuate so much and so quickly. I've noticed that I don't really open up to people that could be close friends because I don't trust that they'll understand or stick around. Um, this has meant that now I don't have any close friends. That sounds very BPD to me. Um, and again, I've already kind of teased out the difference in a previous one, but I just wanted to mention that this, that kind of fear of abandonment is just so specific to it, for it when it comes to BPD and not complex PTSD. Again, complex PTSD does come with like difficulty in our relationships because we're reactive and impulsive and things like that. And that, again, is that overlap in the symptomology. But you can watch my video if you want more clarification, but I hope that I answered it thoroughly before. And with that, let's move on to question number five. This question says, hello, Katie. When I was in therapy, I would go through phases of feeling like pushing my therapist away and then feeling secure with her. I would tell her when I felt like pushing her away and she would reassure me that she would be there. I would then feel secure in the therapeutic relationship for a period of time, let's say two weeks. But then I would have doubts after the appointment. And in the week before my next appointment, I would be paranoid that she didn't want to be my therapist or that I was just too much. She would then reassure me and the cycle would begin again. Is the cycle part of BPD? Yes, it is. And just attachment as a whole. I'm not sure if it's BPD because of my anxious, oh, or because of my anxious avoidance style or a mix of them both. Ironically, the therapy has to end as my therapist said that she felt like she wanted to save me. She allowed emails about two or three in between sessions, allowed extra time without it costing extra uh-oh, boundaries. And she admitted that I was on her mind much more than her other clients. It had some counter transference there. She said that she realized this was because she wasn't trained to work with people that have BPD. I want to be clear that she took all responsibility and didn't blame me for therapy ending. Why do therapists find it difficult to work with people with BPD? I never threatened to harm her or myself. In fact, I, I, in fact, I felt suicidal and I didn't even tell her. I feel like it makes no sense. Thanks for all that you do. That makes total sense. Um, unfortunately, not all therapists are trained to work with people who have BPD. And like I said, that experience that I get, like that feeling, that like spidey sense of like, oh, they're wanting to attach. Um, for those of you who have been following me for a long time, you know that I I practice, you know, I obviously practice a very like safe holding environment and therapy, but also very tough love and very boundary focused and communicated. Now, when it comes to like allowing emails in between sessions and getting in contact, I'm very rigid about that. 
And that's because of this, because people with BPD, we struggle, right? We want to connect all the time. And in that attachment to our therapist is like, oh, it's so ripe for the picking. We just want to keep going. And we imagine that they can finally be the, the caregiver or the mother that we're needing and they'll never leave us. And people with BPD can want to stay in therapy with the same therapist for like 10 years. And and even like um, I've had patients like try to get worse so that I wouldn't end their sessions. Like if there's any talk of sessions even starting to end, they suddenly are suicidal and and having so many more issues. And it's kind of part of that aban- fear of abandonment and attachment, right? Which is totally understandable and totally normal. But if we aren't trained to to identify it and to manage those boundaries, it can become very unhealthy for you as the patient. And that's essentially why your therapist, you know, kind of ended therapy and cut the cord is because you did what you do because we can't help it, right? We're the patients. We're not supposed to know. And you did not do anything wrong. That's why she took ownership. It was all on her. You did your thing and she didn't know that that was what was happening and did not react in a therapeutic manner. And therefore, you know, had to end things because it is hard with patients who have BPD to like come back from that. Like I've heard from a lot of colleagues over the years who will not realize they're working with someone with BPD and then they'll call me because they're like, oh my God, but I like, I called them back and like I did an extra session. I didn't charge them and like all the things that you're talking about. And I'll say, well, you have to be stern now. You have to like lay a boundary and that can cause a, a, a really harsh reaction from their patient or the patient cannot believe the boundary and it can take more work to uphold it. Now, not everyone knows how to do that or feels like they can and it can be hard for us as the patient to like, have had that and now not and that can cause a lot of stuff too so sometimes therapists will just end it um yeah what was the question i feel like i really oh why do we find it difficult i think because they're just not prepared and they don't know how to to manage it now i firmly and maybe it's because i've worked with so many patients with bpd i firmly believe that we should always have those rigid boundaries and we should always be very clear and there should be like an intense structure to therapy i feel like it's safe for all involved but not everybody's trained and not everybody knows. And that's why I think it's difficult is because the therapist or mental health professional acts in a way that isn't therapeutic for the patient with BPD. And that's why people find it difficult because then they get themselves in these situations where there's bound, there's no boundaries and a BPD patient will like, you know, reach out more and want that. And then the therapist can, what's called counter transference, react out of that need and like get upset and and then that's not healthy then we don't have a healthy therapeutic relationship does that make sense i hope that makes sense i know it's kind of complicated but it's like we as therapists aren't supposed to react back we're supposed to be able to hold the space but if we're having our own reaction we've let boundaries get crossed and it's not therapeutic anymore Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, I would love to hear your thoughts on the HERD and DEP trial in relation to BPD and personality disorder diagnosis, only that everyone can sit with their own thoughts on the trial as it plays out in public opinion, but no hate or blame here, please. It has the potential to do damage. I agree. I am shocked a professional can diagnose like that, considering how long many spend uh, many spend trying to get a diagnosis. And I'm saddened to, saddened to see a professional run with BPD stigmas and stereotypes in such a public trial. It made all people with BPD sound dangerous and volatile and untreatable, in my opinion. I agree. I didn't like it either. I would like to know what you thought as a professional and whether a diagnosis made it, um, made that setting based on that limited info and time. It could be reliable. Oh, could be reliable, please. Yeah. So I first of all, the if you heard those tapes and stuff that Depp released, it's like heartbreaking to me and really 
horrible to listen to, but only people that truly know what's going on in their relationship is them. Um, so I'm not really weighing in on that because it's not my, I haven't been, you know, it's not my business. I don't know them, but the, I didn't like the person out, the BPD diagnosis first, like I said, six months, right. And, and diagnosing really quickly and throwing that out there and then using all of the like bad stigmas and connotations associated. I think it was like histrionic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder really dehumanized people with that, especially obviously Amber Heard. Um, I I don't believe you can have a diagnosis happen that quickly. There is something to her. I will be honest that as a mental health professional, the the tapes and the way that she reacted and her history of abusing other partners. There's a lot of in in our, I think any mental health professional will be like, yep. When you hear of things like this, you automatically have these like little bubbles that pop up of possible diagnoses. Those could be things like narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, BPD could be histrionic. I don't know about histrionic because I don't know how, how much she craves that like attention and sexualized attention. Um, I'd have to know her. Again, I'd have to know her better. But these are things that do pop up and you think about them. And and also I wonder about like uh, abuse in her past. I have a lot of questions again, because she's not my patient. And so I think there are a lot of possible diagnoses or just at least some symptoms of them or traits of them. But I believe diagnosing people quickly and using stigmas to kind of blame or shame someone is never appropriate. And I felt I found that to be extremely it's just a bummer. I was let down um, because here was an opportunity to educate people. I mean, I appreciated like Johnny Depp's candor when he talked about dealing with drug and alcohol abuse. I think just drug abuse. I feel like he said he wasn't an alcoholic, but either way, talking about that, I appreciated his candor and detox, talking about detox and, and all of that. And I think those, those are like educational opportunities for, especially since it's so public, not that they should be thinking about this, by the way, but on an, an outside perspective, I'm like, that was a good learning for other people. And I'm, I'm really, you know, glad that he felt okay, or I guess he's kind of forced, but shared that and that it was done in a very real, to me, very maybe kind of stigmatizing in some of the questions her people have, but they're, again, it's a court case. They're trying to win their case. Um, but I felt like it was done in a, a pretty non-stigmatizing way. Um, and I feel like the emotion of his experience with like, I mean, he's, he's an actor too, so who knows, but I felt like that emotion that he shared, it felt very real to me. Okay. So there's that. And I feel like I wish, I feel like in this example, there was an opportunity to educate people more about it and how it can feel. And even with, let's say BPD specifically, the reactivity or the volatileness of this specific person needed to be better explained as like that emotional burn victim and that reactivity being a, a sensitivity, right? And instead of being like they're dangerous, it made it sound like all of us with BPD are just like these like rage filled danger machines. And I'm like, I don't think, I mean, I know that to not be true. And I felt like that I did, did not think that that was appropriate, but that's just my opinion. And I just don't, I don't think diagnoses can be made that quickly. I know other people might disagree. This is just my professional opinion. Personality disorders cannot be diagnosed so quickly. It takes time. I mean, obviously, maybe with this, if you have the history, but it's still sitting with a person person and seeing the patterns and digging through more relationships than one or two. Um, yeah. So I didn't like stereotypes or stigmas either. Those are my thoughts. Let's move on to question number seven. 
says, hi, Katie, would a therapist or psychiatrist ever hide a BPD diagnosis from a client or patient? I can't imagine. Would Would there be a reasoning if so? When I had a case manager, she said that I had BPD. It was in my records, not her diagnosis. Oh, but my psychiatrist never told me about it. Interesting. I've heard from a lot of you that this has happened. Now, from my perspective, I would never hide a diagnosis, any diagnosis from a patient. I how are you supposed to be able to learn about it, educate yourself and work on something if you don't even know what it is, right? I would never do that. So the only reasoning, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I cannot think of a reason. Again, I can understand not putting a diagnosis down in your paperwork, like I said before, because it can follow you and a lot of people don't want that, or it can be stigmatized. And, um, you know, maybe you want to get a job in a certain industry and, if you have that diagnosis in your record, they're never going to hire you. That could be a reason for not putting it in. But I would never put it in someone's record and not talk to them. I don't know. I mean, my my guess, I guess if I had to just like throw out a guess, psychiatrists don't spend a ton of time with us usually and maybe thought you already knew. I don't know. That's all I can imagine. There's never a reason to hide it. It's your diagnosis, not mine. Um, so I can't like to keep it seems wrong. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, I wish I had a better answer. I thought this was a great question. I wish I had a better answer, but I've heard from a lot of you that you find this stuff out later. Like, oh, I didn't realize I was diagnosed with PTSD and anxiety. I didn't know. And so if you don't know if you have a diagnosis, it's completely within your rights and it's okay to ask your therapist, psychiatrist, whomever, hey, I want to know what my diagnoses are. I realize I've never asked and I just like to know what I'm working on. I feel, but I, it'd be, you shouldn't have to ask, but it's okay to do so if no one's told you, okay? Again, it's your diagnosis, not theirs, and you have a right to know what it is. Let's move on to our final question, question number eight. It says, Katie, I was wondering if you had any tips for long distance relationships with someone with BPD. Thank you. Um, Oh, and they said others in the community, if you have tips too, I'd love to hear them. Now, when we're in a relationship with someone with BPD, there's going to be a lot of reassurances and um, connect, uh, I don't want to call it connections, but we're going to have to do a lot of diffusing of frustrations or misunderstandings and acknowledgement of splitting. And I will I have to say this, even though the person who's asking this, I don't think is the person with BPD, but maybe they are. The person with BPD is responsible for taking care of their symptoms and managing them and acknowledging their role, okay? And if they are not, just like any mental illness, if we're not taking responsibility for our own actions, it's not even mental illness. If you're a human in this world and you refuse to take like responsibility for the things that you're doing or have done, relationships will not be your strong suit. It's going to be really difficult for people to interact with you in a healthy and loving way. And you're going to always be in disagreements, arguments, uh, not talking to so-and-so, this person's amazing, now I hate them. You're going to always be going through that drama. And so I just have to put that out there that we are all responsible for our actions and relationships. Now, if we're in a relationship with someone who is working on themselves and they're doing their best, I think... um, the tips that I would have are tips that I would have for any relationship, but I would lean more into the connection and making time for each other and having like dates that you set up, even though you're at a distance, meaning why don't we both play the same video game together or we'll do a FaceTime dinner together or, you know, check-ins during the day and little texts and um, 
showing affection in very small yet tangible and ways that they can look back on. Because the one thing with someone with BPD, and you guys let me know if you have BPD and you're like, Katie, you're way off. This is all garbage. You let me know and share some other helpful tips. But I think when we have BPD, we can get caught up in our thoughts and we can let our racing thoughts take us down a spiral where we're like, nobody loves us. Everybody hates us. Everybody's going to leave us. This is terrible. And so having record of love, meaning we have texts from our partner saying that we're important and that they care for us and that they're here for us and they're not going anywhere. We have all these reassurances that we can go back and email, text, uh, messages, whatever, and we can read them again, I think is really helpful. Having those reminders is going to be really key. So make sure you do that for your partner. And I think like any any healthy relationship, showing them love in multiple ways. Um, you could even have them take the love languages quiz and you should take it too. I think that's really beneficial for all of us. So if they're if they like gifts, then send them little things in the mail here and there as you can afford it. And not not big things, just little thoughtful, caring gifts. Um, writing them letters and putting those in the mail. It's like I know it sounds old fashioned because you're like, oh, I could just text it or email. And you can do that too. But sometimes it's nice to be surprised by a loving gesture. So those are some things that you can do. And I think also in long distance relationships, it's always important to have your next time you're going to get together planned and like scheduled. And then after that happens, you need to plan your next one. There always needs to be that next time that you're going to get together because otherwise it can be really hard, especially with some of BPD to know that you're going to see each other again. We can go down that spiral of like, oh my God, they're going to leave me. And that can kind of be an assurance that I think would be kind of soothing for for both of you. Um, but I would love to hear from other people, other tips that you have and ideas, but I think those that, that will get you off to a great start. That's all we have for today. Thank you so much to each and every one of you who sent in your questions. They were so wonderful. Thank you for those of you who answered my poll. Like I said, we will be changing things accordingly. Um, have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care of yourselves and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.